Let's say a prayer before I begin. Dear Heavenly Father, now, as we come to your word, we want to know what you have in it, what you've done for us. So open up our minds that we might get to know Jesus better. That the thing that we really look for and need today will be here in front of us. And so bless the scriptures as we look at them and fill us up with your knowledge and wisdom that we might take from this the thing that you meant for us to have. Fill us up, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is in John as we continue our studies through the Gospel of John, chapter number 5. We're doing the miracles that John recorded in his book, which were a very select group with a very select purpose. And we're now come to the third miracle, not the third miracle that Jesus did. By now he'd done many, but uh, the third miracle that he recorded. John chapter number 5 will be our text for today. I always talk to young people before they get married, and one of the things over the years I've always told them is you need to go to church. You need to be in church. It's a healthy place, first of all, for your relationship between the two of you. Second of all, for your family, it's a very healthy place. And thirdly, it keeps life in balance so that you don't forget what's important. So you need to go to church regularly. Unfortunately, some of those young folks wouldn't take my advice. And the last time some of them darkened a church door was when they walked out the door after their wedding. That was the last time they were in church. I remember one young lady was appalled by that advice. She said to me, what possible good would it do for me to listen to you for half an hour a week? (laughs) I held my tongue. I did not make comment on what she said. But inside I thought to myself, honey, I'm sure it wouldn't do you any good to listen at all. (laughs) And no, they never did come to church. There was another young couple who actually lived in Syracuse, and they were being married here at our church because their family was in this area. And so I advised them to find a church somewhere close to their home and visit that church. And so the next time I met with them, I asked them, well, did you find a church? They said, yes, we did. I said, and did you attend a service? They said, yes, we did. I said, oh, that's good. Very, very good. So tell me, how'd you like it? And their answer will stick in my mind for as long as I live. And they said, well, it was about as exciting as watching paint dry. (laughs) Of course, watching paint dry is not a very inspiring activity. It's just plain boring. Unfortunately, the church they visited was spiritually dead and boring and uninspiring. So I advise them to try somewhere else and keep looking. Somewhere there'd be something. Unfortunately, some churches are spiritually dead. I have always tried to find a church to attend when I'm on vacation in some other location. 
And uh, some of those have been good and lively services that I've enjoyed. I have attended others on vacation where I found my wife poking me in the ribs to keep me from falling asleep. (laughs) Some churches are like that. I hope you don't fall asleep here. If you do, maybe you're tired. I think I could keep you up, I hope. (laughs) In our text today, it doesn't say it outright. This is something you get from reading between the lines. But I would guess that Jesus has been watching the paint dry. He's been listening to those who are spiritually dead, trying to preach a sermon. And I'm sure he found it uninspiring. In John chapter 5, we come now to the third miracle recorded in John's gospel. By this time, I'm sure Jesus had done many miracles. And if you will recall with me, the first miracle that Jesus did was unsolicited. No one asked him to turn water into wine. He used his miracle working power to bring joy and gladness to the wedding of those two poor folks in Cana because they were making lifetime vows to each other and God approves of marriage and he approves of its vows. And he used his miracle working power to bless them. The second miracle, which we looked at last week, the healing of the nobleman's son, was done to build a saving faith in the heart of that nobleman. And through his miracle-working power, Jesus inspired that nobleman and all of his household to believe in Jesus' words. It was a faith-building miracle. This third miracle that John records has another purpose altogether. It is not primarily to bring joy, although it did. And it is not primarily to build faith, although it did. But Jesus has another reason for doing this third miracle. So let's see what Jesus is planning as he does the third miracle in John chapter 5. Begin reading at the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Whatever feast it was doesn't matter. Uh, Jesus, along with thousands of other people, followed the law and attended the temple in Jerusalem for a celebration. Temple was a huge complex, over 27 acres of property, all walled in. Much of it was open-air courtyards. It was carved into the side of Mount Zion with terraces carved into the stone and stone steps leading up through the terraces. And uh, on the various levels at certain strategic places, rabbis or scribes and Pharisees came and they taught classes or gave sermons all through that open area. And uh, listeners to the temple, particularly on holidays like this one, would attend. Now they were noted all through the Bible for their boring sermons. 
How'd you like to be known for that? They're boring sermons and their lack of authority in their teaching. In other words, they were about as exciting as watching paint dry. Much more to the point, the people attended those services in hopes of getting help and inspiration and encouragement. But they received none. And I'm sure as Jesus left the temple that day, he was saddened by the dry, dead sermons, especially when he looked at all the people, common, ordinary people gathered in that courtyard, people who lived with the struggles of life and the trials of life and needed help but didn't get it. So as he leaves the temple, verse 2, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, the blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Somewhere outside now of the temple walls, uh, there's a pool. Basically, it was a spring-fed pond. And someone has excavated in Jerusalem. They've been doing that for a couple hundred years. And they've excavated a great big large hole in the ground that they think might have been this pool of Bethesda. If so, it's a very large place, much larger than my pond. And most of you have been there and seen that. Much larger than that. And what happened was the pool seems to have waters that occasionally bubbled up. And when that happened, the waters seemed to have a healing quality. Now, my friends, I grew up on a place called a Sour Springs Road. And it was called that because at the turn of the century was a hotel way down in the swamp called the Sour Springs Hotel. And somebody discovered down in the swamp an underground spring of sulfur water. And so they dug several wells, maybe about 15 foot deep, laid up in stone to get at that sulfur water. And when I was a kid, my father took me down to those wells. And he, I had something unique happen. He held my feet and dropped me down into the well. Right down close to that water. That water was yellow colored like mustard. And I remember it bubbled continuously. Because the sulfur, so much of it was escaping the water as gas. So it bubbled. In the old days, they took that water, pumped it into the big hotel, and you could take a bath in that nasty yellow sulfur water at the Sour Springs Hotel. People came from miles around. They took the train into Basem and went by stagecoach down to the Sour Springs Hotel. It was a very big deal. 
and they also bottled that water so you could drink it. Yuck. Yuck. Now the question is, did it have healing qualities? I don't know. I don't know. Does sulfur have healing qualities? Maybe some. But the point is, people at that time believed it did. And they went there, bathed in it, and drank it like it was wonderful. And so it was at the pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda, Beth, is the Jewish word for house. Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, is the house of bread. means the house of bread. And so uh, Bethesda was the house, Beth, of mercy. And at certain times of the year, the waters of Bethesda bubbled and got stirred up. In the King James Bible, it says that an angel stirred up the waters. Some scholars have gone to great lengths to prove it was just a spring-fed pool. And when the water table got either low or high, uh, the spring picked up sulfur, which came into the pool from underground. My friends, whether it was a spring or an angel makes no difference at all in this story. Obviously, those people believed in the healing quality of that water. Because they constructed five porches, they're called, or basically roofs, supported over the heads of these people for shade all around the pool. And under those five roofs were, roofs were gathered impotent people, it calls them. Not people with life-threatening diseases, but rather people with some chronic disease that rendered them helpless. Blind people were gathered under those porches. Lame people. People with bad backs. People with crooked legs. Injured people. They weren't dying from their injuries, but rather handicapped and in particular weakened by their ailments. And they believed that when the waters bubbled up, you could go into the pool and be healed. Apparently, there was a limited amount of healing in the water because the idea was that as soon as the water bubbled, the first people to get into the water were healed. And so it becomes, you can imagine in your mind, a long time of waiting and watching that pool and watching that water. And suddenly followed by a frenzied rush to get to the water when it suddenly bubbled up. It was rather, if you'll imagine, a pitiful sight to come to those five porches and see those blind and lame and withered sitting waiting for what? An opportunity to be healed. No doctor could help those people. There's no medicine available that could cure their ills. So they waited. Day after day after day, they waited. 
Was there any chance that a blind man could get his eyes healed by sulfur in a pool? I highly doubt it. But where else can you go? Nowhere. So against all hope, and yet with some hope, even though it's dim and flickering, no other place offered hope to these people, so they waited. Some had obviously been there for years, waiting and watching. Can you imagine how depressed these people were? A long vigil with very little hope, day after day, week after week, Month after month, and for some of them, year after year. If it was a house of mercy, it was clear mercy was in short supply. And only their belief in that spring was what kept them there. Was it an angel sent from God? Who can say it wasn't? Except for the skeptic who doesn't believe in the mercy of God. Now, into that situation, pitiful and hopeless as it was, comes Jesus. He's a stranger to most of these people. There's a large group of people And among the noise and the confusion of those large crowds, Jesus comes quietly walking. Looking at the different people gathered there, the blind and the lame. And as he walks quietly among them, his eyes fall on a particularly pitiful case. Verse number five. Certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Here's a man who for 38 years that man's whole working life he's been lame injured somehow and crippled. And he lays on a cot and he just lays there. You can tell he's got a certain corner where he lays, and you can tell he's been there year after long year. Someone probably helps him in each morning and leaves him there all day, comes and drags him back out at night. And in his eyes, you can see a deep depression. There is no hope, no anticipation. Only hopelessness 
waiting for years and so sad and depressed. And Jesus quietly walks over to him and bends over him and asks a very strange question. Do you want to be well? What a question to ask. Of course he wants to be well. Much to our surprise, though, he doesn't say, yeah, of course I want to be well. My friends, he has no faith, none at all. He has long since lost his hope. Jesus doesn't try to awaken his faith. He's so depressed, so hopeless, he's dismissed all hope. So he doesn't answer, oh yes, I want to be well. That's not what he says at all. He only explains to Jesus in dark, sad tones that he is alone. And when the water stirs, other people can get to the pool. And they always get there before me. He can drag himself along the ground, probably, to no avail. Others go in ahead of him. Now, you will verily, very carefully notice Jesus' instructions in verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. I'm quite sure it was not a loud command, as sometimes Jesus did. But I think it was a very quiet command as Jesus leaned over to the man close to his face and spoke in low tones. I want you to stand up and roll up your cot, put it on your shoulder, and I want you to walk. Suddenly, the man feels in his long, dead legs a tingling sensation. Nerves, long since damaged and dead, come to life. And suddenly, blood flows down into those deformed legs and feet. And he grabs his knees and his legs, and he can feel them. He's rubbing his hands and his legs and feet. Verse 9. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. He reaches down, pushes on the ground, and those legs move. And he pushes upward and he can feel his heart just pounding as he stands on his feet for the first time in 38 years. And he looks for Jesus. Jesus is gone and he realized, I don't know who he was, but he just healed my legs and he told me pick up your bed, so I will. And he rolls up his cot laughing and bouncing up and down, sets it on his shoulders and says, I'm going for a walk. And off he goes. 
Can you imagine, can you explain the exuberance and the joy that he feels? Can you explain the freedom and the energy as he struts along with his youth restored? Tears of joy as he walks briskly across those five porches, past those people who always got in before him. He walks by him, carrying his bedroll on his shoulder. But in verse 9, there's one thing to notice. It was the Sabbath day. Now you will see why Jesus did this miracle. And what was behind the choice of Jesus to heal this particular man? Verse 10. Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. And they asked him, What man is it which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Can you picture it in your mind? Hey, you! Hey, you there! What do you think you're doing? Put down that bedroll. This is the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry that on the Sabbath day. And can you imagine his reply? Oh, it's not a burden. It's not a burden at all. I haven't been able to walk for 38 years. And a man came to me and said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he healed my legs, which haven't worked for 38 years. And he told me to carry my bed, so I did. Well, put it down. You're breaking the law. I said, put it down. Who are these men? The rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees. The men who preach in the temple those paint-drying sermons. These men preach about little rules what their sermons are about. If you're growing mint in your garden, you must go and count each plant carefully. And every tenth one you must pluck up and bring to the temple to make sure you tie the mint in your garden. That's a whole sermon. And they preach such trifles as this. When you trim your beard, if you're Jewish, make sure you square off the corners because God doesn't like round-cornered beards. That would be a sermon that you'd hear from these rabbis. Then such ridiculous rules. On a Sabbath day, don't you start a fire? That's considered work. Don't you pick up a bench or a stool or anything that weighs more than one or two ounces. That is also considered work. And you cannot work on the Sabbath day. God doesn't like you if you work on the Sabbath day. That's 
what they preached in those paint-drying sermons. Little rules and laws. And if you break our rules, God will be mad at you. So we don't care if you haven't walked for 38 years. God hates you when you carry your bed on the Sabbath. Put it down. Who was it anyway that healed you on the Sabbath day? And he says, I don't know who he was. He left. Now that poor man, put yourself in his shoes. That poor man can feel those old feelings of depression. That gripped him for so long coming back. Because no one seems to care that his crippled legs were healed. So why did Jesus do this miracle? Not to supply and bring joy. Although it did, certainly did to that poor man, didn't he? It wasn't in response to faith, although that man now most certainly will believe. He does the miracle to show the difference. The difference between those paint-drying rabbis and Pharisees and Jesus. They're so dead and so uninspired and so shallow and so unmerciful as opposed to Jesus who is so life-giving and so inspiring and so deep and so full of mercy. A man so pitifully helpless and so depressed and downtrodden with no hope. Maybe the most helpless of all who were gathered at that pool has been healed and restored and given a new lease on life. And those rabbis and Pharisees hate him and despise him because he carried his bed on the Sabbath. What a glaring difference. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto me. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Their response to this miracle working power was, Let's kill him! This miracle turned the Jews against Jesus. Done right under their noses in a place called Bethesda, the house of mercy, Jesus healed a helplessly injured man. Now think, my friends. Think of this. Jesus could have said this. Rise up and walk and no one would have said anything but that's not what he said he said rise up take your bed and walk because he knew it would bring a crisis 
And he was right. It did. Later on, Jesus walks into that temple and they go right after him. Who do you think you are? Healing on the Sabbath and telling a man, worst of all, to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Don't think Jesus isn't ready. Don't think he'll allow them to browbeat him. He's quite ready to answer. Verse 17. Jesus saith unto them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In the Jewish mind, a son and a father were equal. They were perfectly equal. Not in our mind. We think differently about that. But in the Jewish mind, if the son, if the father owned an estate, the son did. If the father had a, a title, the son had it. They were equal. And so Jesus said, my father and I work together. And they say, God isn't your father. Don't claim to be God by claiming that God is your father. And then Jesus tells those Pharisees and rabbis just exactly who he is. I am God's son. And I came to do God's work. The Father's work. I came to give life. Now listen to his daring words. Down at verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Wow. What a thing to say to those fellows. I came to give eternal life. I came to raise the dead right out of their graves. And if you want proof, there's a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. And now he can walk and carry his bed. Because I work with God to give life. My words are not deadening and uninspiring like yours are. So what was this miracle all about? Why did Jesus do it? He's trying to get those hard-hearted hypocrites to believe. He provides evidence. He explains his work. He explains who he is. He contrasts his life-giving work with their paint-drying message. But they refuse To accept the truth. My friends, I'm so glad that Jesus is the beating heart of what we believe. We have a life-giving Savior with power to give life. He can pour his life into our hearts and fill us with a holy energy. And we can believe with all our hearts and give him our lives. We do not have a religion that is uninspiring and boring and paint-drying dull. We have someone that we can trust and believe and receive from him. Blessing.
and life and life forevermore. And if you want it, you can have it. Now, of course, as this miracle shows, some people don't want it. As for me, I'll take all I can get. I believe. I want his life throwing, flowing through me into my heart and out to others. Because I'm one of those people who will hear his voice calling to me out of my grave. I'm going to rise from the dead. So when you lay me over yonder in the ground someday, it's only temporary. Precious Jesus. May you take his offer and let his life flow into your heart and be inspired by his words. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did that day. What a contrast it shows in the life-giving words of Jesus that pour into our hearts grace and truth and holy energy and blessings more than we can take. We are grateful to you for that. We thank you for what you did that day as it shows us so clearly that there is a religion that's practiced that's not much good. We want to do the right one. We want you to bring to us that strength and energy and those words that will bless our hearts and fill us with your presence. So come, speak to us, open our ears. Let us hear the truth. Let it bring us life, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, I'd like you to turn in your hymn books with me, if you will. Closing, hymn number 109, standing as we sing in closing, Wonderful Words of Life. Thank you for what Jesus has said. Wonderful words of life. Standing as we sing in closing 109, wonderful words of life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Christ, the blessed one, gives to all wonderful words of life. Words of life, all oh, so freely given, wooing us to heaven. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Sweet. 
for a closing word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we think about these things and what you did, we are inspired to trust you more and to believe in you with all of our hearts. And in this world where there is so much that seems to have gone awry, we're glad we have a safe place to live and trust and believe and to know you personally. So thank you for giving us what we need in these dark days and trusting in you with all our hearts. We look ahead to see what you have for us in the future. Bless us, we ask, and bless all those who have listened with us today. And let your spirit speak to their hearts and bring to them the good things and the wonderful words of life, we ask. We thank you for being with us today and attending our service. We're glad that you are here. Thank you for coming. We ask you to bless each one that's been here in a special way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.